This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me for another study in our ongoing series on the armor of God out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. Today we're looking at Ephesians 6, 12, where we learn about the spiritual enemy that is arrayed against us on the field of battle. You often heard it said in sports and in warfare and even in politics, know thy enemy. That's especially true when it comes to spiritual warfare as well. If we are going to stand against the devil, stand against spiritual forces, we need to know who it is, what it is that we are against. So that's what we will be studying today in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, I want to let you know that along with these podcast studies, there is a course that fits this study as well, of course, on the armor of God. And the first couple lessons are available at redeeminggod.com slash courses. You uh, just go over there and you can see the course, some of the lessons that are available right now. Now, by taking this course, you're not only going to get a little more information than you're getting in these podcast studies, but at the end of the course, you will also be able to download a free PDF copy of my forthcoming book on the armor of God. You will have access to that book before it is even published. And uh, so that's why one of the reasons I encourage you to take the course. Also, there's a lot more information in the manuscripts and transcripts of the course than uh, is available in these podcast studies or even in the course lessons themselves. So if you want the full experience, the full, all the information uh, that I'm able to cover on this, then you'll want to make sure you take that course. And how can you take the course? There's only one way, by joining my discipleship group at redeeminggod.com slash join. There is a fee to be part of the discipleship group. It's $9 a month or $89 a year. That saves you two months. Uh, You get two months free that way. Uh, But along with that, you not only get pretty much every book I've written in PDF form, um, at least all the ones in the courses, you also get access to private Facebook group, uh, access to me by email. And uh, these courses usually charge, if I were to charge them, they would charge for them, they'd be about $300 each. And there's multiple courses, there's well over several thousand dollars worth of courses there and audio download teachings for you available there as well. All right. So anyway, just go to redeeminggod.com slash courses to see which courses are available to you right now. And then you can join the discipleship group by going to redeeminggod.com slash join. I look forward to seeing you inside the discipleship group. All right. So with that in mind, let's get into our study of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. So basically, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do have a summary of the spiritual forces that are arrayed against us in spiritual warfare on the field of battle. And we're in this section of Ephesians chapter 6, the spiritual armor section, where Paul is laying out for us the battle plan. This is sort of the battle briefing. We've, we've gathered together under a tent, and our commanding officer is telling us our orders for battle and who it is we will be facing in battle. So in previous studies, we have looked at the battle cry in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, sort of get our blood pumping, get ourselves ready for battle. We've looked at the battle plan, our orders, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put on the spiritual armor of God. We are supposed to stand against the wiles of the devil and uh, basically just stand our ground. And we are supposed to watch out for the traps of the devil. Now, uh, in, in all of this, it's important for us to remember, and that's what we're going to be looking at today, some of what we'll be facing on this battlefield, who our enemy is. Again, in spiritual warfare, just like in sports, just like in the political arena, pretty much just in all areas of life, it's important to understand your foe, understand your enemy. There's that old saying, know thy enemy. And that is what Paul unveils for us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, it's very important that as Paul writes this, it's uh, we remember that that Paul is not writing these words to people who didn't know anything about spiritual warfare. 
If you remember the account from Acts 18, when Paul was actually in Ephesus, this is on his third missionary journey, and he had briefly visited Ephesus during his second missionary journey, but now he's spending a little bit more time there to teach them and so on, to teach the Christians there on what it means to follow Jesus and be the church in their community. Anyway, in Acts 18 and then also in Acts 19, we read about how Paul spent two years in Ephesus teaching people about Jesus. And during this time, many miracles were performed, many people were healed, and many people were delivered who had evil spirits. Now, at the end, near the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, some itinerant Jewish teachers came into town, and they heard what Paul was doing, and so they decided to start their own little deliverance ministry on the side by casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And this group actually was successful for a while. They developed a following, and they became known as the Seven Sons of Sceva. Uh, one day, the Seven Sons of Sceva were holding one of their you know, deliverance ministry crusades, or whatever you want to call it, in a local household there in Ephesus. And they commanded a demon to come out of a man, and they did so in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. That's uh, Acts 19, verses 13 and 14. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> then uh, what we read there in Acts 19 is that the man who leapt, uh, the, the man who had the evil spirit, leapt upon the seven sons, overpowered them all, beat them, stripped them naked, and chased them out of the house, wounded and bleeding. And you can imagine how this News about this spread throughout town, right? Um, Paul had been successfully casting out demons, and these seven sons of Sceva had also been successfully casting out demons. Uh, but here, the demons had had their way, had, had bested, had beat, had defeated these seven sons of Sceva. And in fact, they knew about Jesus and they knew about Paul, but they didn't know about these seven sons. And so uh, they, they, the seven sons had left town suffering a humiliating defeat. Now, as a result of this, of course, uh, Paul's ministry grew in fame and the gospel spread and grew among the town in Ephesus. So now Paul is writing a letter from prison to the Ephesian Christians, and as he comes to Ephesians 6.12 to talk to them about the spiritual forces that are arrayed against them, it is likely, it is nearly uh, completely possible that many of the Christians to whom he is writing became Christians, joined the church because of this incident with the seven sons of Sceva. So they know firsthand. They uh, had seen and maybe even heard about what had happened to the seven sons of Sceva, and they had become Christians as a result. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, he doesn't mention it here in Ephesians 6.12, but he is alluding to it. He is reminding them, hey, remember that incident? I was able to cast out demons. They were not successfully, that's because Jesus, whom we serve, is more powerful and strong. Now, I want you to be aware, you don't, basically Paul is saying, you don't want to happen to you what happened to the seven sons of Sceva, do you? Of course not. Nobody wants to be beaten, stripped naked by a demon-possessed man. And so, be aware, know thy enemy. That's what Paul is basically saying in Ephesians 6, 12. Okay, so let's look at this verse, because you and I, we want to be successful. We want to stand on the field of battle, and we uh, need to know our enemy as well. So let's look at Ephesians 6, 12 to see what you and I can learn about how to wrestle, how to stand against spiritual forces. All right, so first we read in Ephesians 6, 12 that we struggle not against flesh and blood. Let's talk about this word struggle. Uh, some Bible translations do have this word struggle, uh, but the Greek word here is pale, uh, which refers to the ancient Greco-Roman wrestling sport. All right, And so in my opinion, the word wrestle or wrestling, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, wrestling is the best translation. Now, let's, let's think about this a little bit though, uh, because initially this word wrestling if we remember the context, might be a little confusing. If you've been listening to these studies, you remember that when we looked at verses 11 and 13, uh, and even the first part of verse 14, 
we saw that four times in these verses, Paul told us to stand against the devil. He says we must stand our ground, right? To make it our goal. Having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. So four times over and over, he says, just stand there. And we talked about why that was. We're not supposed to advance on the field of battle. We're not supposed to take the attack. We're not supposed to go on the offensive. We're entirely defensive in spiritual warfare. And the reason is because Jesus has already won this battle for us, and we simply have to stand our ground. But now, Paul, when he comes to this section of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, he tells us to wrestle. And when you think about wrestling, what is it you have in mind? Well, generally, when you and I think about wrestling, we sort of think of modern high school and college wrestling, where really the, the two combatants begin on their knees on the ground very often. And they're grappling and they're rolling around on the ground, trying to pin each other, one another, to the ground. And so we sort of feel like Paul is confusing his metaphors here. On the one hand, he says, stand, stay standing, stand therefore. And now he, when he comes to spiritual battle itself, he's talking about wrestling, which we think of rolling around, grappling on the ground. So which is it, Paul? Do you want us to stand or you want us to roll around and wrestle with our uh, spiritual enemy? Ah, well... What we've done is we have taken a modern concept of wrestling and imported it onto Scripture. The better practice is to understand what Paul would have thought about and what the Ephesian readers would have thought about when they read or when Paul wrote this concept of wrestling. And back then, you could do some cultural background studies. By the way, I just finished my course on how to study the Bible. So if you appreciate how I study scripture, how I teach it, my, my recently finished course on how to study the Bible might be helpful for you as well. And there's a free book that goes along with that, of course, when you finish it. But when we go back and study the context, the historical cultural context, we discover that in Paul's day, they did Greco-Roman wrestling, which is still an Olympic sport today. In fact, it's the oldest Olympic sport in existence. And it was, Greco-Roman wrestling was a favorite pastime of the Roman soldier. Um, in fact, Greco-Roman wrestling, many believe, is one of the oldest competitive sports in the world. Uh, we have drawings in ancient caves dating as far back as 3000 BC about men wrestling. But uh, it wasn't just a pastime, it also helped prepare these soldiers for battle. Now, here was the rules, and they really haven't changed well, they changed a little bit over the centuries, but uh, in Paul's day, there was really only one rule for winning in Greco-Roman wrestling. The only way to win in ancient wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, was to stay on your feet, all right? There weren't all these elaborate rules of points and pins the way we have in Olympic Greco-Roman wrestling today. The goal was to stay on your feet and throw your opponent to the ground three times, okay? So you want to stay on your feet, and you want to throw your opponent to the ground three times. If you did that, then you won. So Paul's description of wrestling here is completely consistent with his fourfold description in these surrounding verses of standing on your feet. In the field of battle, in spiritual warfare, Paul has said four times, stay standing, stand on your feet, stand therefore, having done all to stand. And even when it comes to wrestling, stand, because that's the way wrestling worked in Paul's day. So there is no contradiction here between Paul's descriptive phase, phrases. He is not mixing his metaphors. Uh, in fact, the, the, the Greek noun for wrestling is pale. The, the verb form of this word is palo. And guess what it means? It means to throw or to swing. And so in wrestling, in Greco-Roman wrestling, the goal was to throw, palo, your enemy, your foe, your, com your, your uh, competitor, to the ground. Okay, And that is what Paul is going to tell us we need to do here in spiritual warfare as well. In fact, over in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, Paul writes that in this battle— one of our goals is to pull down strongholds. 
uh, to throw or cast down arguments and everything that is against God and the Word of God. All right, so that is what Paul has in mind here. Yes, we're supposed to stand on our feet, and we do that by wrestling, by struggling, by throwing down, by casting down the enemy and the enemy's ideas and teachings and lies and deceptions. And he, our enemy, is going to try to be doing the same thing to us, casting us down, just uh, throwing us to the ground. And he does that with his wiles, his tricks, and his traps, which we talked about some in the last in the previous study. But as long as we are aware of the wiles and tricks and traps of the devil and the spiritual forces, then we are able to stand our ground and throw him to the mat as well. Now, there's some great encouragement here for you and I, and I just want to pause here and think about this a little bit before we go on and look at the descriptive terms that Paul uses in the rest of Ephesians 6:12 to talk about our spiritual forces. The great thing about wrestling is that, and this is what's true in Paul's day with the Greco-Roman wrestling, is that one failure didn't defeat you, all right? So remember, I told you the rule was you needed to throw your enemy to the ground three times. So even if you got thrown once, you could get back up, get back on your feet, keep fighting, keep trying to stay on your feet and throw your foe to the ground, all right? Uh, Even if you got thrown down twice, that's okay, All is not lost. Get back up, get back up on your feet, and keep fighting. Three times, however, in Greco-Roman wrestling, then you lose. But here's the cool thing about Christianity. Here's the great thing about being a Christian. In Christianity, as a follower of Jesus, due to God's infinite grace, you and I can be thrown down an infinite number of times. And as long as we continue to get back up, as long as we continue the fight, we have not lost. Uh, Remember, Peter denied Jesus three times. So does that mean he's out? No. After Jesus rose from the dead, uh, Jesus reinstated him in a sense, forgave, forgave him and restored him so that he could help lead and found the church in Jerusalem. And the same is true for you and I. No matter how many times you and I have been thrown down to the mat, no matter how, how many times we've fallen to the same temptation over and over and over and over and over and over again, get back up. The battle has not been lost. The competition, the, the wrestling match is not over. Victory in the Christian life only comes through great pain and sweat and effort. And the Christian life is not one of ease and comfort. But your life, your Christian life is not over just because you've been thrown down three times. The match continues on. So look, if you ever feel like you just can't go on, get up. Take one more step. Get up off that mat one more time. Do you ever feel too tired, too weary, too beaten, too battered to continue? I've felt like that many times in my life, uh, frequently even over this most recent summer. But look, Stay standing for 10 more seconds, for one more minute, right? Do you ever feel if any moment you might fall? Look, don't give up because in due time, the enemy's foot will slip. It's the promise of God, Deuteronomy 32, 35. So stand back up, get back in your defensive stance, keep wrestling. Sometimes the best wrestlers can struggle against one another for hours without Uh, one or the other ever gaining the upper hand. In fact, uh, back in the Olympics of 1912 in Stockholm, Sweden, the silver medal wrestling bout lasted for 10 hours and 15 minutes. (laughs) 10 hours and 15 minutes. Look, you may be exhausted, you may be tired, you may be tired of the struggle, but don't give up. The match isn't over until the bell rings in our case, until the trumpet sounds. Okay, so keep fighting, keep struggling, keep wrestling. Listen to the roars of the watching crowd. And there is a watching crowd, a great cloud of witnesses we read about. So keep standing, keep fighting, keep struggling, because you are being cheered on. You are being encouraged to stand on your feet until you gain the victor's crown. So that's struggling, that's wrestling. View it as a wrestling match, and that often helps you get back on your feet after you fall to temptation or fall to the struggle. So that's this idea of wrestling. 
Uh, let's move on then to these four descriptive terms that Paul uses in Ephesians 6.12 to describe who we are wrestling against. Um, and we see as we do this that we have nothing to fear from them. Uh, so Paul begins, uh, first of all, though, before we look at who we're wrestling against, he does describe who we're not wrestling against. And it's very important that Paul brings this out because this is the one thing most of the time we humans forget. Uh, Paul begins by telling us that our struggle, our wrestling, is not against flesh and blood. Uh, this is a reference to other human beings. Throughout Scripture, the term flesh and blood is used in a variety of ways to refer to other members of the human race. And it's so important for us to remember this, because as we go through life, what is our tendency? What is our habit? We think that our enemy is other human beings, don't we? Maybe it's people of our family member, our family that we just don't get along with. We view them as our enemy. Maybe it is someone from another political party. Right? We view them as destroying the country, ruining the world, ruining our future. Who knows what it might be? We think that those people on the other side of the political aisle is our enemy. Or we maybe think it's someone of another religion, or someone of another race, or someone of another country. Um, maybe we think that it is someone of a certain profession, those evil doctors right, who do this or do that. Maybe it's someone uh, who who just differs with us in every way we can imagine. Paul points out here right at the beginning, he wants to liberate us and free us from this idea that people are our enemies. Paul says, no, listen, as I list these titles that we struggle against, do not think that the human beings you think are your enemies, that that's what I'm describing, because he's not. Now, it's true, and I'll talk about this a little bit as we go along, that there are spiritual forces and powers behind some of these human beings, especially when it comes to political and religious forces. But the people themselves are not our enemies. Sometimes these people are pawns or are slaves and chained. They are in darkness themselves. And they are being used by the spiritual forces behind the enemies. But that does not mean the people are enemies. In fact, they are enslaved. They are captive. And it is our job to free them and liberate them from the spiritual forces that are misusing and abusing them. Okay, so it's very important for us to remember this as we go forward. People are not the enemy. doesn't matter who they are, what they believe, or how they behave. Okay? It's true. We might fight against people in our family room. We might argue with coworkers at our job. We might even sue people in the court of law. We might disagree with people on the other side of the political arena. Maybe sometimes we even kill people in the arena of war. But people are not our enemies. Uh, yeah, they might act like it. They might engage in all sorts of hateful and hurtful, uh, even violence against us. But we must remember, they do those things towards us because they are enslaved just like we are. So, uh, people are not our enemies. Though our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That doesn't, <laughs> that's not actually a relief, though, because as we see in the rest of Ephesians 6.12, our true foe is much more fearsome and sinister. Paul writes here in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Notice, first of all, that Satan is not mentioned here. Uh, okay, principalities, powers, no Satan there. Rulers of the darkness of this age, Satan is not mentioned. Spiritual hosts of wickedness, not mentioned. Does that mean Satan's not our enemy? No, Satan is our enemy. Uh, Satan, as the devil, though, was listed back in, e, in, uh, in the previous verse, in verse 11, wiles of the devil, okay? So mentioned there, it's sort of implied and understood here. Uh, however, it's important to recognize right now that the, the devil, the Satan, is sort of our primary foe, the leader of our enemy, in a sense. And um, the word devil is the Greek word diablos, 
And the Hebrew equivalent is Satan, which that's where we get our word Satan from. All right, the word means accuser, adversary, slanderer, uh, one who stands against. It carries the idea of a prosecuting attorney, right? The one who stands up in a court of law and points the finger and says, this person is guilty. Here are the bad things they did. And I don't really care one way or another if you think about Satan, whether or not Satan is an actual being or not. We did talk in the previous study. It's important to recognize that Satan does exist. Satan is not a figment of our imagination. Though Satan would love to get the world to think that he does not exist, um, Satan does exist. Now, is Satan an actual being, like an angelic being? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I think However you think about Satan, it's important to recognize the spirit of Satan. The satanic spirit is the spirit of accusation. And so wherever accusation and finger-pointing rise up, that is the spirit of Satan. That is the satanic presence being manifest uh, in our presence, in our midst. And so... um, we need to be very, very careful because as soon as we find ourselves pointing the finger at someone else, condemning them, judging them, accusing them, we have become the mouthpiece of the accuser, of the one who condemns, of the prosecuting con- uh, uh, attorney, Satan. Okay, Jesus does not condemn. Jesus forgives and loves and accepts and extends grace. It's Satan who accuses and slanders and condemns. So uh, be very, very careful. And, and by the way, I've said this in previous studies as well. <clears throat> which uh, entity, which group is the most full of accusation and judgment today on the world? It's religion. I don't care which religion you're talking about, even Christianity. We often get into this state where we love to do nothing more but judge, condemn, accuse other people. Those who believe the wrong thing, those who behave in the wrong way, we accuse them of all sorts of wrongdoing and sin, and we judge and condemn them to hell, all sorts of things. Okay, this is satanic because it is accusatory. So be very, very careful. Um, And... uh, uh, that, that we do not fall into the spirit of accusation, the satanic spirit in this world. All right. Anyway, not mentioned here, but I just wanted to bring that out and point that out because the devil was mentioned in verse 11. And uh, the devil is, the spirit of accusation is our primary foe in spiritual warfare. So let's talk then about the four terms, though, that Paul does mention here in verse 12. The first one is principalities. This is the Greek word arche. And it literally means beginning, uh, but when used in connection with people, it refers to the rulers, the the principal leaders of any organization. Okay, so it'd be like the head, the head leader, the head ruler, uh, the the beginning, the one at the top. And uh, look, the the word does refer to authority figures of human groups. Uh, In numerous places throughout scripture and other Greek literature, the word is used to describe earthly, human rulers, kings, governors, magistrates, that sort of a thing. In our modern day, we might say presidents, prime ministers, or even senators, congressmen, um, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, Governors, mayors, those sorts of things, okay? Leaders of groups. Um, But uh, in, in, in fact, when used by itself, the term almost never refers specifically to evil spirits or demons, but instead to human leaders and rulers. And so we are tempted right here to think that Paul, when he's talking about principalities, that he's referring to humans. Now, if Paul had not said that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, then we would be fine in thinking that. But Paul has just said, remember, as I go through these four terms, don't think about flesh and blood. Okay, so we cannot think about these human rulers, even though arche, principalities, often refers to them. So what is Paul referring to? Since it's not the human rulers, what is he referring to? It seems that there are powers or systems or traditions or structures or laws or even groups of permissions, something like that, that lie behind every earthly ruler. And it's against those that we struggle. 
And it is those things, those powers and systems and traditions and structures and laws that cause and even allow these earthly rulers to behave as they do, which is often contrary to the way most people, that would be the, the, the best for most people and for this world. These, un, these spoken or unspoken rules and, and cultural norms, which allow certain people, groups, and institutions to control and manipulate and even harm other people. And the thing about it is the human leaders in those positions are just as blind and just as enslaved to those power system, tradition, structured laws, and cultural norms, and so on, as the rest of us are. Okay? And so our goal as we struggle, as we wrestle against the principalities, is to liberate everybody involved. All the people who are captive and uh, fall prey to these leaders, but also to liberate the leaders themselves and show them that there is a different way of living and ruling. That uh, they they can rule with love and with service rather than with greed just live and love and serve as Jesus did, okay? So, so as we wrestle against principalities, our goal is not to wrestle against the human beings, but to wrestle against the power structure behind the human beings and therefore liberate everybody involved so that we can live and function as God desires through liberty, love, and justice. All right, that's the first term, principalities. Let's talk about this second term, powers. Uh, The second term is powers. The Greek word is exousia. And uh, powers is a fine translation of the word. Uh, It could also be translated as authorities, as it is in some Bible translations. It's a close synonym to the first word, arche, um, and it refers to the permissions and power structures that allow people, human people, to rule. Now, uh, it specifically, though, has a slightly different flavor. It uh, has in mind the the power of decision-making and lawmaking. Okay, remember I said there are traditions and powers and systems and rules and laws behind the principalities. Well, the powers, the exousia, refers to those who are in a position to make those laws and rules and structures. So that's that's what's going on here. And uh, the term refers to both the power of the rulers and the way these rulers make laws and govern people. So you think about your particular local, state, or national government and who it is that makes the laws and how it is they go about making those laws. And then you start to think about why those laws were made and what they accomplish and who they benefit. Usually they tend to benefit those who are in power already. Okay, why? Well, because there are uh, exousia, powers, behind the lawmaking systems which seek to control and dominate and manipulate humans, human beings in general. And so again, once as we struggle against the powers, we need to work to create laws or even do away with laws that are damaging and destructive and that lead people into uh, uh, being manipulated and controlled by those in power. And then those in power, those who make the laws, can uh, work to create laws that, that bring freedom and justice and liberty and life and love towards people as well. All right, the third title uh, Paul mentions here is this word rulers, and uh, the word for rulers is kosmokratoros. Uh, it's only used here in the New Testament. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's made up of two words, cosmos, which means world or uh, you know universe even, and uh, krateo, uh, which means to control, to seize, or to rule. So kosmokratoros, Cos- sorry, kosmokratoros are the world rulers, right? The world forces that dominate uh, this world. Now, what's very interesting about this word here, this term that Paul uses, is the verb krateo, uh, obviously is related to the word kratos, uh, which was referenced back in Ephesians 6.10, uh, where, where Paul gives the battle cry, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Might, kratos is there. So uh, kratos, by the way, <laughs> uh, in fact, there's even, um, I think there's a, some, some, some video games that have as their main character, the God of War, that's what it is. It's just off the top of my head here. Haven't played them, but there's this God of War 
um, video game series, and I think the main character is Kratos. Kratos was the Greek god of war. So when Paul refers here to Cosmokratoros, or even for in verse 10, to Kratos, he might be thinking of the world forces and domination that lead us to go to war, to engage in violence against each other. If you've read my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, you know that God is against all violence. God is against bloodshed. Jesus did not die to buy forgiveness from God or anything like that. God did not want or demand or desire the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross in order to forgive us of our sins. There's a completely different reason that Jesus died, uh, to reveal something very significant to us. God is not a God of bloodshed and violence. Now, uh, we are, we want bloodshed, we want violence, and most pagan gods want bloodshed and violence, but God himself has revealed to us in Jesus Christ does not. And so when Paul here is referring to Cosmocratoros, this world ruler, this world power, and if he has in mind behind it this Greek god of war, Kratos, uh, then he probably has in mind the forces and the, the, the systems that lead us into war, that lead us to engage in violence against each other. In fact, we, we see that as well because uh, Paul describes these world rulers as being of the darkness of this age. Go back and listen to my early podcast episodes, especially on Genesis 1-2, and you see that there was this oppressive darkness, this ominous darkness that covered the face of the earth. It's the same concept, uh, metaphorically, that Paul is referring to here, the darkness of this age. Uh, the word refers to moral and spiritual ignorance that blinds the minds of unbelievers, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, and 5, and elsewhere. All right, Scripture often equates uh, darkness with our human tendency to engage in violence and warlike behavior that leads to death. All right, so the theme of darkness that blinds people about the ways of God, which is of life and peace and love and forgiveness and grace and mercy— Okay? The, uh, the, the spiritual forces of this world don't want us to live that way. They want us to engage in violence and warfare and bloodshed, just like the Greek god Kratos, the god of war. Okay, so Cosmokratoros is this world-dominating, worldwide spirit of war and violence that dominates this age, dominates human lifestyle. And it is exactly contrary to God's way of living. Uh, we could think of Daniel 10, which tells us that in Daniel's day, the Persian and Greek empires were controlled by two angels who were attempting to prevent God from carrying out his plans. Now, both the Persian and Greek empires, what did they want to do? They wanted to control the world. And how did they do that? Through domination, through warfare, through bloodshed, through violence. That is Cosmocratoros. We can think of um, the Nazi Germany uh, plan to rule and control and dominate the world. Uh, or Napoleon. Or Alexander the Great. All of these great, uh, great by our standards, nations and empires who sought to dominate the entire known world, to subjugate people, and they did this through warfare and bloodshed and violence. All of them fall under this category, this, this image of Cosmocratoros. All right? Now, it's not just emperors and dictators, though, world rulers of that sort. Uh, it's not the human leaders themselves, right? Remember, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So even though I mentioned Napoleon and Hitler and, 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 and Alexander the Great and so on, it's not the people. It's the powers behind the people, the political rules, the, the economic policies, the educational system, those sorts of things that exert power, that blind people, that lead people to think that the way to solve our problems is with violence and warfare against our enemies. And guess what? Religious leaders often fall prey to this as well. Even churches, even spiritual leaders, even Christian leaders can be influenced by cosmocratoros. I would say that any church, any religious group, any religious leader that calls for violence and warfare and hatred toward any other group of people, 
whether it's another religious group or whether it's, you know, some political group or whether it's this, this nation over there, whatever, anytime a religious group calls for violence and warfare and bloodshed against someone else, they have fallen prey to cosmokratoros, right? This, this world ruler, this world domination thinking of, of evil and power and, and violence, okay? We need to be the opposite way, though. As long as our minds are blinded to the truth of God's love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy, we will be tempted to, 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 to go back to our old way of living, which is violence and warfare, okay? We need to learn the truth revealed by Jesus on the cross. Again, I talk about it in my book, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, uh, which is God is not a God of warfare and violence. God is a God of forgiveness and love and mercy and grace. It's we humans who want bloodshed and violence, not God. And God is telling us to turn away from all such forms of living and follow the way of Jesus as well. Don't fall prey to Cosmocratoros, okay? Let's follow Jesus, Christos, instead. All right, fourth and final term then is spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. All right, now this spiritual host reminds us that there are scores and scores of these wicked enemies. Okay, there's only four terms here, but that doesn't mean there's only four enemies, five if you count the devil. All right, the word hosts actually is not in the Greek text. Uh, Our Bible translations provide that for clarity. Uh, The theme of the text, though, is about spiritual warfare. And, uh, you know, it might have been better for Paul to, if for our translators, I'm sorry, they're going to use this word hosts. If they're going to add a word to our text— Maybe since we're in a spiritual warfare passage, they could add a military word, such as cohorts or legions or battalions, right? Uh, spiritual host, I don't know, host, okay, fine. It's sort of like a warfare term, but spiritual battalions or spiritual legions of wickedness might have done a better job since they're providing a word anyway. Uh, let's, let's, uh, so I, I would like spiritual legions of wickedness or something. But anyway, uh, the, the term that is here is the Greek word pneumatica. Uh, pneuma means spirit, okay? So pneumatica means spiritual. Now, here's what's curious about this word. Pneumatica is usually related to spirit-filled people who use their spiritual gifts to serve others. It's used this way all over the place in 1 Corinthians. So that would mean it's usually referred to people who are filled and who live by the Holy Spirit. But here... The word is modified with the noun ponerias, which means wickedness or evil. Okay, so these are um, often like in the whole, in in 1 Corinthians, it's modified by the word holy. All right, so it's, um, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, it is modified by the word evil. So these are evil spirits. All right, we fight with the power of the Holy Spirit. These beings, these forces fight with the power of evil spirits. And Paul is laying a direct contrast here between the evil spirituality of our foe and the holy spirituality of ourselves as we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So uh, that's just this this direct contrast here. Now, what about this phrase right at the end there, in heavenly places? Uh, As a result of this, lots of people tend to think that this struggle, this battle, this warfare we're in— is only happening, you know, in the spiritual realm. I don't know if you've read the book This Present Darkness by Frankie Peretti, but this uh, he sort of presents this idea in that book. It's some, not something we can see necessarily around us because it's in the spiritual realm, or it's even in, you know, even up in heaven. Some people will go back to, uh, for example, in Job chapter one, where Satan comes and to this heavenly court, and and God and Satan have this discussion there about. Uh, how much damage Satan can do to Job. And so people say, see, this struggle, this battle that is happening is happening in the courtroom of heaven, in a sense. Uh, Not here on earth. We can't see what's going on. We have to see it with eyes of faith. Uh, The thing is, though, is that is not what in heavenly places means. Uh, The phrase in the heavenlies or in heavenly places has actually already been used several times in Ephesians. So if we look at how the phrase has been used, for example, in Ephesians 1.20 and in Ephesians 2.6, we see that in both of those other places, in the heavenlies or in heavenly places, what it refers to is 
uh, the spiritual reality of life here on earth now. All right, it doesn't refer to what occurs you know, out there in heaven, but to what occurs when the rule and reign of God takes root in our lives upon this earth now. Okay, it has in view this, this idea from, from, from Jesus in Matthew 6.10, where he prays that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so our example is heaven, but it's supposed to be brought down here to earth. And that is this concept of in the heavenlies or in heavenly places. Uh, it does not refer to a spiritual reality, something reserved in heaven alone. It refers to the spiritual reality as carried out in the physical realm, here on this earth, during our lives here and now. So you can see it, you can experience it. I think far too often what happens is we Christians think, well, it's all about heaven, getting to heaven when we die. Uh, it's all about eternity, making sure I have eternal life. And it is important. You know, we, all, we need to live for the afterlife, live for the hereafter. And we neglect the work that God wants us to do here and now. Well, it's all going to burn anyway. Uh, but, but I heard someone once say, uh, some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. <laughs> when that happens, okay, we are allowing the spiritual hosts of wickedness to have their way, to rule uncontested on this earth. But as Christians, this is Paul's point in the letter of Ephesians, we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Why? So that we can rule and reign with Christ here on earth. Not in some future time, but now, primarily now, during our lives now. So, uh, yeah, the battle is a spiritual battle, but it has far-reaching ramifications and consequences in the physical world now. Right, and how do we do that? We do battle in the spiritual world by helping people in the physical world. We can't fall into the trap of dualism, where we separate the spiritual world and the physical world. Biblically, the two are connected and interconnected in every way possible, so that as we make differences in our lives uh, here and now, in this world here and now, it is a spiritual battle, and it is uh, having um, victory in the spiritual realm. The struggle is spiritual, but it's physical in how it manifests in this world. All right, And Jesus has shown us how to do this. Jesus came, yes, to lead us to heaven, show us how to receive eternal life, forgive us our sins, okay? Uh, but you look at what Jesus did, and he was healing, and he was teaching, and he was restoring, he was redeeming, he was reconciling, he was rescuing. All of these, he was setting prisoners free, giving sight to the blind, all these things he mentions in Luke chapter 4. And if Jesus is telling us to do the same things he did, then he is telling us to go out and meet the physical needs of people because that also is a spiritual battle. All right? Uh, this is how God's will is carried out in heavenly places, bringing heaven down to earth so that the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, moves from heaven to earth. Uh, the church's task is not only to pro proclaim to people that they have been redeemed from darkness that once held them in bondage, but also to proclaim to the powers that they are not supreme, that Christ is their sovereign. And that's what we see going on here. That is how we can stand against the wiles of the devil, these spiritual forces in, heaven, in, in heavenly places. All right, so we've looked at these four terms. We've seen this word wrestling and what it means and, and how Paul wants us to stand against the devil by wrestling these spiritual forces. And again, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, not against other human beings, all right? Not against politicians or other religions or, you know, people in authority, but against the, the deceiving and lying and controlling and manipulating powers and forces and rules and structures and systems that are behind those people, that they themselves are captive and enslaved to. So look, do you want to wrestle against spiritual forces? We've learned a bit in this study about how to do this. Uh, and uh, in previous studies, we've learned that our primary task is to stand our ground. Remember, we're in this section right now about the battle briefing, and we've come to the end of it. 
One of the things, though, that I told you we were going to study as we went forward is how to put on the armor of God. Remember, there are three tasks in spiritual warfare. To stand our ground, to watch out for the traps of the enemy, and to put on the full armor of God. But we haven't gotten to the full armor of God yet, but we will. Starting in our next study, we will begin to understand what the armor of God is and how we can take it up and put it on. So you make sure you don't want to miss those studies because that is where we're finally going to learn what the spiritual armor is and how you can go about it in your day-to-day lives, wearing it so you can stand against the devil, so you can wrestle against the our spiritual foe that we have just learned about here in Ephesians 6.12. So hey, thank you so much for joining me for this study. Uh, and, and remember, if you are interested more in this and want more detail about Satan and spiritual forces, in fact, this study, I, I, uh, I cut out about 70% of what I had actually written in my book. Uh, now, the book's not out. So if you want to get an early copy of that book, if you want more resources, more teaching about this, you will have to take my online course in order to get it or wait for the book to come out about a year from now or so. And uh, you can take the course, though, join, by joining my online discipleship group. Just go to redeeminggod.com join, or you can even go to just my website, redeeminggod.com, and click the Join Us link at the top. You can join there. Once you do that, you can take all of my courses for free. There's thousands of dollars worth of teaching here. Uh, let's see, three, six, nine. There's 10 courses so far. Each one's worth about $300. So uh, you can take those all for free when you join my online discipleship group. One of them is the armor of God. And by taking that, you will get a free PDF copy of my entire book at the conclusion of the course. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode. Hope you benefited from it. And I hope you have a wonderful week this week and that you are successful in wrestling against the spiritual forces of wickedness arrayed against us. No matter what, when you fall, get back on your feet and stay standing, my friend, because that is how we stand our ground in spiritual warfare. See you next week. Talk to you later. Bye.